I wonder if, if you're like me in that sometimes you just get sick and you can't get well. Like this, this sickness just keeps hanging on and hanging on and hanging on. For, for me, what happens is that if I was humble, adult, mature enough, I'd take two days off of work, I would rest and get well. But I'm none of those things. And so because of that, I just, I'll, get, I'll get sick for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'll just keep hanging on. And this is not a new phenomenon, by the way. This is an ongoing issue. And so several years ago, it was probably actually many years ago, I was in college, and I had this cough, and it just kept going and going. It was like weeks into months. Just this cough kept hanging on. And it wouldn't go away. And so one day it hit me that my roommate, who I was living with, had had a similar cough. And his had lasted months. So I went to Matt, and I said, Matt, hey, remember when you had that cough? How did you kick that thing? And he got a little glimmer in his eye, and he goes... I'll be right back. And he goes into his bedroom. He pulls out from underneath the counter this stuff. It's called Buckley's. And I go, what is this stuff? He goes, you can't buy it in America. Remember when I went to Canada last year went snowboarding? I bought it and I smuggled it back in. He goes, and this is the stuff that cured me. And I go, seriously? He goes, yeah, yeah. It's called Buckley's. He goes, it tastes heinous. He goes, but it works wonders. And I go, well, are you going to share it? He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll give you two doses. I go, okay. He goes, but I need to warn you, this is the grossest stuff you've ever tasted. I go, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. You're going to want to gag it when it goes down. You're going to have like the weirdest feeling in your body. But if you can last like 10 or 15 seconds, that's when the good stuff begins. So he opened up this bottle. I went and got a a tablespoon from the kitchen and he poured me it and it comes out. It's like white and milky. And I'm like, what is this? And and I'm kind of like scared to put it in my mouth and I put it in my mouth and I start swallowing it. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is worse than he said. And I'm like, not, I can't spit it up because he can't buy more. It's from Canada. We live in Arizona. Um, And so I'm like starting to swallow it down. And then the weirdest thing, I feel like it goes into my brain and starts moving from the midbrain to the front and the back. And I'm like, is this legal? Like, am I getting high right now? What's going on? And I, and I just kept counting to myself. Two, three, four, five. And I get to ten. And it kind of starts subsiding. And I open my eyes to look at him. And he goes, so? I go, oh my gosh. I feel like a brand new man. And I, I took two doses of this. And, and it, it cured me. So uh, it's available on Amazon Prime. Um... <laughs> If you want to grab some, we were out at my house. My wife bought some Wednesday. It arrived on Friday. But, but I tell that story to you, not to sell cough syrup, but because I think my experience with Buckley's is similar to some of the experience we've had over the last seven weeks. I was driving to go work out a couple weeks ago, and I, I, I remembered Buckley's, and I was thinking about some of the feedback I've heard from you on this series, and, and, and I was reminded of a, a passage that we're not going to get to in Revelation because it's deeper in the book, But it's descriptive of our experience. In Revelation chapter 10, John says, So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I, John, took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And that's somewhat what I think of our experience the last few weeks in this series called Overcomers. There have been some not fun messages in this series. And that's on your end. Imagine my end. 
You know, there have been some hard words to, to give and to hear. And for some of the messages in this series, it's felt a little bit bitter, a little bit hard going down. We know it's good, but it's hard to hear. And, and if we're left to our own devices, sometimes I think we will gravitate towards the honey messages and we'll avoid the bitter ones. And our culture will we'll move towards the things that are easy to swallow and miss out sometimes on the things that we need. And the book of Revelation begins with a promise. And I want to conclude today by going back to that. In Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. That's the reason we've been in this book. Because we want to experience what God has for us, even if it means we walk through some things that are difficult to hear. And over the last seven weeks, we've looked at these, these churches that are 2,000 years older than us in a very different era. And yet what we found is again and again, the things they were struggling with are things that we struggle with. We've looked at a church in Ephesus that was in danger of losing their heart. They were going through the motions. A church in Smyrna that was tempted to give up during suffering and hard times. A, a church in Pergamum that was compromising their morality. A church in Thyatira that was compromising their doctrine. A church in Sardis that was like a zombie church. They were barely alive and almost dead. A church in Philadelphia last week that wasn't convinced they were strong enough for what lied ahead. And today, the church at Laodicea, a church of lukewarm faith. Today, our seventh and last church is the church at Laodicea. And if you've been here for this series, you know that the book of Revelation was a, a record by John of the vision that God gave him. And then as, as he wrote this letter, he sent it by courier to all seven of these cities. And so we've come back to this map each week, tracking the work of this courier in a loop. And he ends today in Laodicea at the very last church listed here. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It was a city of incredible commerce, banking and medicine, textiles. It was a city that was so wealthy that in AD 60, when an earthquake destroyed it, they didn't ask the government for help. They repaired their, their city themselves. Imagine if Houston, after Hurricane Harvey, said, it's okay, FEMA, it's okay, world, we got it, we'll fix our own city. Imagine if cities in the southeast, after Tornado, said, it's okay, we don't need your muddy government, we'll, we'll fix ourselves. That's how wealthy they were. That's how self-sufficient they were. And as you said in this series again and again, if you want to understand these letters, you have to understand these cities. And the message that comes to them, which I think personally is incredibly relevant to us today, is this. The big idea of their message is this. Beware of the temptation to trust in yourself rather than God. Beware of the temptation to trust in yourself rather than God. If you have a Bible today, I'd encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation's in the very back of the Bible. If you're using your digital Bible, I'd encourage you to scroll all the way to the bottom. I'm going to assume you're using your digital Bible today because your phone's out. You're not watching the Masters. So if I hear some hoots and hollering or golf claps, I'll, I'll know why. But in Revelation chapter 3, we read the last of these seven letters. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. You can follow along. In Revelation 3.14, this is what it says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Father, we pray that our ears would be open to hear what you have to say, that our hearts would be ready to receive it and that you would do a great work in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Today I want to share with you what I'm calling four lingering lessons from Laodicea. Because despite the cultural and historical gap that exists between Laodicea in ancient Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and us today, there are these lessons that are as relevant to them as they are to us. And the first one is this, if you're following along in your handout, Jesus is worthy of our trust. Jesus is worthy of our trust. This passage begins in Revelation 3.14, the same way all of these letters do in this book, by Jesus introducing himself and focusing in that introduction on some component of his nature. In Revelation 3.14, he says, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, when many of us hear the word amen, we immediately think of the last word in our prayers. My kids think that the word amen means the end. So they pray and they go, amen, the end. Like it's just to make sure that God knows we're done. And, and many of us, when we hear the word amen, we think, we think of kind of like, see you later, goodbye, you know, closing. But the word amen is so much richer in its meaning. In its Greek and Hebrew contexts, it means to be firm, stable, sure, established, and trustworthy. So when Jesus describes himself, when he introduces himself to this church as the amen, he's saying, I am firm. I am stable. I am worthy of your trust. And what I'm about to tell you is worthy of being trusted because I am the originator of this message. This is the reason why we conclude our prayers with the word amen, not because we ourselves are firm, established, sure, and trustworthy. All of us have had moments where our lives and character have contradicted these words, but we're praying and we're trusting in one in whom we can believe because he is all these things. So when we pray amen, we're saying that. So he comes to them with this letter saying, I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of God's creation. And what I'm about to tell you is worth taking seriously because of who I am. And I think it's really interesting that he begins this way. Because one of the things I've learned in my very short life is that hard times tend to reveal our trust or lack thereof 
with Jesus. You want to know how much you trust Jesus? Go through something hard. You want to know how much you really depend on and trust his character? Watch crisis come. We said in this series that, that we're all either heading into, in the middle of, or coming out of a crisis. And those moments will reveal whether you believe he's the amen. I sat with a man yesterday who attends this church on the first Sunday of the series. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Today, his heart is functioning at 15% of its normal capacity. And the question of, is Jesus worthy of my trust, is not like a theoretical question. It's a matter of life and death. And many of you are in a similar situation today. You're facing circumstances that are revealing, do I trust God or do I not? I trust him up to right here. But over that, not so much. And there's an interesting corollary. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day the church celebrates the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. The people lined the streets and laid down palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We often think of the word Hosanna meaning praise, and it does. But the word also means save us, deliver us. These people were asking and pleading with Jesus to conquer the Romans and deliver them from their rule. And interestingly enough, Jesus comes as their Messiah, but not the Messiah they were expecting. He's not going to conquer the Romans. He's not going to deliver them in the way that they want him to. And so Sunday, they're crying Hosanna. And Friday, they're shouting crucify him. They decided that he was not worthy of their trust. Why? Because he disappointed their expectations. I love how Anne Lamott describes expectations. She calls them resentments under construction. And many of us have resentments under construction today. We have the vision we had of how life was going to go or how this season was going to go or how 2019 was going to go. And when Jesus doesn't show up the way we thought he would, we decide that he's not worthy of our trust. We decide that he's not the amen. By the feeling in the room, I feel like I've moved from preaching to messing, so I'm going to move on. Number two, we are in danger when we trust in ourselves. So he begins with, I am the one who's worthy of your trust. And then he says, and the reason that I bring that up is because trust is your issue. In Revelation 3, verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. If you've been in this series, you know that after his introduction, Jesus always goes to their works. And often he commends these churches. Hey, guys, you've held to your, your doctrine and your theology amidst rampant and pervasive paganism, worship of other gods. Hey, guys, you've served other people. 
even in the middle of hard times. Hey guys, you've loved and cared for others when it would have been easy to love and care for yourself. But here, he says, I know your works, semicolon, you're neither hot nor cold. There's nothing to commend here. And what he does say can only be understood when we understand the story of Laodicea. I mentioned that they're the seventh church. And close to Laodicea are two cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Some of you who know your Bible, that's the city that Colossians was written to. And the church at Hierop- the, the city of Hierapolis was known around the world for its hot springs. Out of the ground, naturally hot water bubbled up. People came up from around the world to experience them. In Colossae, you had the opposite. You had icy cold springs. And the Romans had built from Hierapolis to Laodicea an aqueduct that brought water to the city because the city had no local water source. And the water that was warm in Hierapolis goes through the aqueducts and arrives at Laodicea. And guess what? It's lukewarm. So when Jesus says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, he was speaking their language because every day they had to deal with lukewarm water. And lukewarm water is of no good. I grew up in Las Vegas, where it gets to 147,000 degrees in the summer. (laughs) So I love ice. I love ice water. I would love to fill up my whole thing with ice and just putting water on top of it. My wife grew up in western New York, which is basically borderline Canada. They hate ice. I got in so much trouble when we first started dating because I'd bring her drinks with ice in it. She's like, what is this? She'd toss all the ice out because they're like Canadian, European up there. They just don't do ice. But if you're hot in the summer, then ice water is awesome because it cools you off. And if you're in Prescott in February and you're, you're uh, shoveling your snow for the fourth time that day because of the snowpocalypse we all experienced, then you want some hot water to make hot chocolate or tea or the nectar of the gods that we call coffee. All of those things are helpful and good. Hot water, cold water, but lukewarm water? It's of no purpose. And so he says to them here in Revelation 3.16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's harsh. It's a harsh statement. And some of us, when we hear that, we think, and pardon the, the crudity, but we think like hakalugi, like spit out of the mouth. You think that's gross. It's not, it's actually worse. He, what he really means is he means vomit. The word there that's used for spit out of the mouth is the word that was used for vomit or wretch or throw up. And for centuries, Christians have tried to make sense of this text. What does it mean for Jesus to vomit you out of his mouth? Some people have taken this to mean that if you're lukewarm, you're in danger of losing your salvation. You're in danger of your eternity being jeopardized. And some people have taught this text in a way that has led people to become paranoid or anxious or concerned that they could do something that would cancel out or undo the work God has done in their life. And just for the record, I think that's a wrong interpretation. Because when you read scripture, you have to read it in context. 
And if you were here two weeks ago, we read the, the message of Sardis, Revelation 3, 5. Jesus says, I will never blot your name out of my book. He says, once your name is in there, it's there. We read earlier the, in the series, the words of John from his gospel, where he said, the, those the father has given me are mine and nothing will ever snatch them out of my hand. We need to remind ourselves of the word of Paul in Romans 8, 1, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is not a word that says you're condemned, you're toast, you're hopeless, you're outside of God's grace, because if you could do something to undo what God has done, then you could do something to earn it or deserve it. And our gospel is a gospel of grace in Christ alone, through grace alone, in faith alone. And so if I can't do anything to earn it, I can't do anything to undo it. But he does bring a word that says, if your Bible is still open, in Revelation 3, 19, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Calling on the words of the writer of Hebrews, who said, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So if, if you're feeling today, as a follower of Jesus, a condemning voice for your lukewarm life with God, that voice is not the voice of God. That's the voice of your enemy. When the Holy Spirit works in our heart, he convicts us, but he doesn't condemn us. And there are very popular books out there based on this particular passage that lead you to a sense of condemnation and rejection because of being lukewarm. I've never sold several million books, probably never will, but I disagree. I think as followers of Jesus, we never have to worry about being condemned. He was condemned once and for all. We stand in freedom. But the temptation is on the other side to go, well, I can just live however I want because Jesus has saved me. I can just do whatever I want because my eternity is secure. And that's an equally dangerous place. Because Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will bring harsh judgment and discipline on you. And in this life and the next, you may miss out on the abundant reward I want to give you. Pastor Tom mentioned this last week. And so in Revelation 3.17, he says to them, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is who we are without Jesus. When we put our hope in ourselves, we're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In Jesus, we're rich, but in ourselves, we're this. And this is the problem of Laodicea. They were ridiculously wealthy. They were like stupid rich. They had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. And the temptation for them was to put their trust in their wealth, not in Jesus. Now here's the problem. My hunch is that when you read this text today, you said, man, those rich people. And here's the problem. We don't see ourselves as rich when we are. The vast majority of you in this room watching online, for the 8 billion people who are alive on planet Earth today, you're in the top 1%. For the vast majority of followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, you are in the top half percent. 
And for our brothers and sisters around the world, billions strong who follow Jesus, you are the wealthiest of the wealthy. And yet you don't see yourselves as wealthy. And I don't either. And the reason why is we spend our time comparing ourselves to people who are wealthier than us. Here's what that does. When you spend your time comparing yourself to people who are wealthier than you, it builds ingratitude and greed in your heart. Ingratitude for what you don't have and greed to get more. When you recognize how much you have compared to those you have more than, it builds gratitude in your heart and it leads you to be generous because you realized how blessed you are. And for this church, they had put their trust in their wealth, not in Jesus. And so as a result, they became self-sufficient and dependent on themselves, not the amen. And they were in grave danger because they became lukewarm. And the source that led them there was that self-sufficiency. Number three, in that place, if we're like them, What Jesus does is he invites us to trust him in new ways. If your Bible's still open, you look at verse 18 here. Jesus says to the Laodiceans, I counsel you then to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Huh? Didn't you just tell me, Scott, that they already were rich? Yeah. In riches that wouldn't last. Jesus says, Buy from me gold refined by fire, true riches. And this would be a a bold statement to make because banks from all over this section of the Roman Empire were headquartered in Laodicea. It was a banking center. Wells Fargo is in Utah. Bank of America is in Charlotte. BMO Harris is in Montreal. It was that place. People sitting in the room work for those banks and he says, hey, buy from me real gold that you may really be rich. He then says to them, he says, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. The city of Laodicea was known throughout the world for its black garments. And he says, black is the symbol of sin. My garments are white. Symbol of purity. Buy from me the purity and the forgiveness that you need for you are naked and ashamed without me. And then he says, and buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea had a temple to a false god where people came from around the world to buy ointment for their eyes to heal their eye diseases. And Jesus says, come to me and buy from me true healing for your eyes. He's speaking directly to the places where they have put them tr- their trust in themselves. And he's saying, instead, I invite you to put your trust in me. I told you a few weeks ago that I went through a season of burnout seven years ago. And after almost 15 years of serving in a campus and church as a minister of the gospel, I will tell you that every single time I've ended up in a lukewarm place. The road that took me there was self-sufficiency. Doing the work of God in the power of my flesh. Seeking to advance God's kingdom, not in his spirit, but mine. Seeking to lead other people in my own strength, rather than recognizing that my strength is found in his, 
when I allow his grace to be sufficient in my weakness. And if you're lukewarm today, I'm going to hazard a guess that it's possible you've taken the same path. You're tired. You're exhausted. You've been through the ringer. And maybe somewhere along the way, something shifted and you didn't even realize it. But you started living in your own power and strength rather than his. You tried to endure in your own strength rather than his. And eventually what happened was crisis came. Hard times came. Difficulty came. And like always happens with those things, we get squeezed. And the question is, what comes out of you when you get squeezed? Right now, if you're in crisis, what's coming out of you? It's the true nature of what's inside. If, if you grab your Crest tube at home or Aquafresh or Fixident or, you know, whatever your favorite paste of choices, and you squeeze it and you go, man, I want a blue frosting. You should have bought blue frosting instead. You should have put blue frosting in there instead because what comes out of it is what has been put into it. And the squeeze is just the test. So if you go, I don't know what came over me or I don't know why this is coming out of me. It's because crisis is revealing the truth. Because crisis always reveals the truth. And if you're struggling to trust in God, it means that somewhere along the way, you weren't trusting him like you thought you were. And life has a way of forcing you to look in the mirror, even when you'd rather look away. That's why this series about how to have hope in hard times has been an invitation to look in the mirror and say, is my hope really in him? Am I really putting my faith and trust in him? When hard times come, am I looking to him? Or not. Now, what comes next in the passage is for me, arguably, the scariest verse in the Bible. Revelation 3:20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And for, for years, this verse has been used by evangelists when speaking to people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. But that's a bad application. Because this verse is not written to people who aren't followers of Jesus. It's written to the church. And if that's the case, then how on earth does the church get to the place where they hear, and Jesus is on the outside? How on earth do you get to the place where Jesus is locked out of his own church? How on earth do you get to the place where Jesus goes, mind if I join you? You get there where it stopped being about him and it started being about you. It stopped being about trust in and dependence on him and it started being about trust in and dependence on yourself. And again, the temptation is to move quickly to a place of shame and condemnation. If you are feeling shame and condemnation today, that is not the voice of Jesus. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. What does he say here? 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will make him spend the rest of his life trying to earn back what he lost and reminding him what a screw-up he is. No, what does he say? If anyone hears the voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. In the first century, in Rome, if we shared a meal, it was a sign that we were okay. It was a sign that that we were in fellowship with one another. It was a sign that there was nothing between us. Jesus isn't standing on the outside, knocking on the door, waiting to cast a weight of shame and condemnation on you. He's waiting for you to look in the mirror and recognize the truth of where you are with him. Listen and hear him knocking on the door and open the door so he can give you what he has always wanted to give you. Freedom, abundance, forgiveness, and a bright new future. And number four, the last one, overcomers will reign with Jesus on an eternal throne. In Revelation 3.21, he says, to the one who overcomes or the one who endures, I will grant to sit on my throne with my father and I. It's this image that there is a throne that God is sitting on, that Jesus is with his father there. And guess what? There's a spot for us too. This gives me great hope because growing up as a child, I didn't want to go to heaven because I thought it was going to be an unending worship service where I had to sing, shout to the Lord, and I could sing of your love forever, eternally. And this is a bigger vision of heaven that says that not only will we be with Jesus, but we will be reigning with him. He will give us work to do and authority that he will infuse in us to have. Heaven is not like a trip to Cracker Barrel where you sit on the front porch and rock in a rocking chair for eternity. on the front steps of your mansion, which you're hoping is going to be bigger than your house here. It is an opportunity to share in the glory and the majesty and the work of God eternally. And even if you are in a lukewarm place today, the opportunity is available for you to repent and renew and experience all that he has for you. So here's a couple next steps to take this week. Number one, I want to encourage you to explore the places where you're struggling to trust Jesus. You could wait for crisis to come, or you could decide to look today. I prayed with a man yesterday. I if I told you the story. The first Sunday of the series, he got pancreatic cancer. And today he's in the hospital in ICU with 15% heart function. And our whole conversation yesterday was about this question. It's one thing to trust Jesus when everything is great. It's another thing to trust Jesus when it's a matter of life and death. So don't wait for that moment. Choose to explore those places today. And remember that nothing changes until you're honest with yourself. You can't be honest with Jesus and other people if you're not honest with yourself. So take a look in the mirror and say, God, where am I struggling to trust you? Where are those places that I'm like, take a hard look number two test the temperature of your relationship with jesus you know stick your finger in the water is it hot is it cold is it lukewarm again there's no place for condemnation if you're a follower of jesus but there is a place for conviction and repentance 
And then number three, renew your trust in and dependence on Jesus. Renew it. That's the whole point of the season that the church calls Lent. It was intended for weeks to happen to prepare our hearts to celebrate what this week is all about. This is the reason why churches have struggled for years with Easter being as significant as Christmas. We spend six weeks with the inescapability of Christmas. We stumble into Easter. It's done in three hours. We go, okay, moving on. If it's the biggest deal in our faith, it's worthy of being prepared for. And you guys have been doing a heck of a job. You've showed up for seven weeks in a row. And frankly, I thought our attendance was going to die during this series. Because I'm like, nobody wants to show to hear me you know, drop the hammer from Revelation. And you've showed up. And you're doing the work. So this week, as you get ready to celebrate Good Friday here with us on Friday at 6.30, and next Sunday on Easter with your friends, what would it mean for you to renew your trust in and dependence on Jesus? What would it mean for your prayer this Holy Week to be, God, I surrender myself to you. God, you gave everything to me. Now I want to trust my life to you, even this current crisis and challenge, because you are the one that my hope and trust is in, not myself. I think that would change how you go through Holy Week this year. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.